Welcome back to the channel. I'm your host for today, Claire Headley, and this is my next episode of Scientology Stories in which I talk with people about their experiences in Scientology and getting out of Scientology. And as always, here is my important note. Whether you're currently in Scientology, a former Scientologist, or just curious about hearing these stories, please know Scientology does not want you to hear these. So thanks for being here. Thanks for watching. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for helping us to educate people on the true and abusive nature of Scientology. And my guest for today is the wonderful and amazing John Atek. We're back for part two. Welcome back, John. Wonderful and amazing. That sounds good. <laughs> I must try well, and live up to that. <laughs> yes. Well, I say that because I, as I've, as I, as we talked about in part one, is the first time you and I have ever talked mm. face to face, and it's just amazing to compare perspectives. And um, you know, I've just found so much learning on this path of recovery. Mm. Uh, Nineteen years now after getting the heck out of Scientology with the clothes on my back and. $80 in my pocket. So it's just really, it's an amazing path to be on. And I'm grateful to have you here today. Thank you. And it's it's lovely to be here. And I'm worth saying that the, the path to recovery is, is also the path of, of growth, that um, there's post-traumatic stress and there's post-traumatic growth. And um, by having had the experiences we've had, even horribly negative ones, by digesting those experiences, we become better people. And um, I'm sure that on a daily basis, you and Mark realize that you're much better than you were yesterday. Oh, oh absolutely. <laughs> Every day. Every day I get a little lovely. <laughs> oh. okay. Well, well, speaking for myself, yeah, no, of, of course, there's many road bumps. We'll continue to hit road mm. bumps. We'll make mistakes. We'll, you know, but, uh, and again, I, I just have, I it the learning process and the peeling of the layers and the extricating and understanding of the first 30 years of my life as a child born into Scientology and then you know everything every experience I had um I'm I'm here despite those and um you know if I can turn that my experiences into helping somebody else then that's that's okay. <laughs> it's and that okay. is the is the significant part that by digesting the experience, integrating the experience, we do become uh, capable of helping other people. And uh, that's the most important thing in life, helping other people. For sure. I think. Certainly from the perspective of society, it's the most important thing that we're helping other people rather than, you know, leaving them be or, or messing with them as Scientology does. Yep. Completely. Mm. Yes. And so for today, I thought it would be um, really good in that theme of what we, we just talked about to discuss your work in helping people get out of and recover from Scientology, because it, your body of work is huge, extensive, and significant. Thank you. Yeah, um, there's a lot of it. Um, and and it, it's sort of I didn't go off and 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 spend eight years training as a doctor or or something like that. I uh, I hit the track running. That um, so I came out of Scientology um, in October 1983, and was 
accidentally elevated to the central position in the UK independent movement. Um, totally accidentally. Um, <laughs> John Mace, who'd, who'd been doing it, was going back to Perth, Australia, and had handed it over to a guy called Bevan Preece. And I was wakened at 9.30 in the morning, which is early for me. I'm a night owl. By a man standing by my bed going, sir, sir, would you take <laughs> this guy, Bevan Priest, come around? <laughs> and he was, you know, three days later, Captain Bill was there, and who I'd never heard of and was a complete maniac. And we had the first meeting of disaffected um, Scientologists in the UK. And wow. uh, from that moment, uh, there were all of these hurt people, these angry people, these people who been lied to, been disappointed, been been treated horribly, and they wanted to talk to me. And so my first mm -hmm. experience was listening to people talking about it. I didn't really know what to do. And at first, you know, for the first few weeks and months, I, it was, well, you know, they need another auditing session or, you know, they need to sort out their, their problems or, you know, their upsets. Um, and, and tell us their withholds and what have you, and that'll sort it out. And and that faded because it wasn't working. And um, right. by January, and, and to comment, those are the those are the mechanisms from my perspective that um, that make it so that a person in Scientology keeps themselves into it once the programming has been established those are the mechanisms like mm. uh, any reason you'd want to leave is simply because of something you haven't confessed to or something you've done wrong yeah yeah and and that's is such an important insight scientology is self-reinforcing um yeah. if you look to it the model of the the chinese thought reform the re-education camps which Hubbard was aware of, and I think used as the basis for the Rehabilitation Project Force, then you have people who are unwilling. And so when people say, well, brainwashing didn't work, it's because when you release somebody from the environment, um, it's not being reinforced anymore. So mm. you build it into the person and um, or into the society, Chinese society to this day. There's an awful documentary called One Child Nation about Hmm. the one-child policy, and you realize just how horrific this was, that, that women were forced to have tubal ligations, were sterilized yeah. after they'd had a child. And um, the thing that got me about this documentary was years later, this um, Chinese filmmaker who's a few years before gone to the US and goes back to China to show off her new baby and make a little bit of film, that people who've Women who who were forced to have um, terminations, women who were forced to have tubal ligation, are saying yes, but it was necessary for China. So they've fallen into the; they're in a reinforcing environment, which is Chinese society. Those who left China stopped believing. So brainwashing doesn't work. Well, mm, no, it worked. <laughs> Look at China today; mm -hmm. it worked. But Scientology yeah. self-reinforcing, and so you will tend to be in the fixed system. For myself, my way of, of leaving the belief system after my last auditing session in January 84, um, when I just, I just, well, I, I don't want to do OT6 and OT7. I, you know, I'm just have no interest in any more body thetans because mm -hmm. I'd come to the conclusion there was no such thing. 
You know, it was a nonsense. I was imagining these things to fulfill Ron Hubbard's nightmares. They didn't exist. They weren't beings that inhabited me. And I think it is one of the yeah. most dangerous ideas that we have inside us, an alien enemy <laughs> that's making decisions for us, whether we call it the reactive mind, the unconscious mind, demons, body thetans, dibooks, gadons, whatever language we go into, genies. This is a really <laughs> dangerous thought. There's some invisible element inside you doing that. There isn't. We have unconscious processes, but there isn't a mind in there. There isn't an agent that's plotting against us. It's, it's absolute nonsense. But you're given yes. this thought that, you know, this is going on inside you. And I was in touch with the Scientology kids oh, about five years ago, I think it was, who, you know, and, and they, they were doing wonderful things. Like, you know, I had a very positive attitude towards organization where people who grew up in Scientology have got together. And somebody there had, had seen me probably at Tony Ortega's site talking about um, the put-downs in Scientology. You know, you're a downstat. Mm -hmm. You know, get up tone. You know, all of this sort of stuff. And they wrote me, they, they did a collective thing, and they wrote me something like 400 different phrases, you know, make it go right, that are used in Scientology that actually, you know, they're put-downs. They're ways of controlling you, and it becomes automatic. So that if you look to cognitive therapy with Aaron Beck, what he realized when he abandoned the Freudian nonsense he was trained in was that we instruct ourselves, we say things to ourselves that sometimes goes by so quickly we don't realize we're doing it. So you, you mm. knock a glass of water off a table and you say to yourself, I'm so clumsy. Hmm. I'm always doing that. And those instructions become... Scientology, you know, the make it go right, you know, the way out is the way through, the whatever that means. Right. Um, and <laughs> yeah, great question. <laughs> you you don't have to think anymore. You've got these little programs running in your head that that basically say you're wrong and Ron Hubbard's right. You know, yeah. you'll be totally self-determined when you do exactly what you're told by Ron. No, mm -hmm. that's Ron determinism. It's one of the things he didn't put in. And undoing that in somebody. <laughs> so coming to this point where people become alert to, to the way they're instructing themselves, my thought was, well, if I believe in any part of Scientology, I can't have an objective view of it. I have to be outside it. And so I decided to disbelieve it, all of it. And I went, I yeah. will, I'll look at the elements of it and anything that's useful to me, I'll take back. And... Um, None of it proved to be useful. It's 40 years later. Um, because <laughs> anything that did seem useful was stolen from somebody else, um, yeah. which I've written about. I wrote a paper called Possible Origins for Dianetics and Scientology a long time ago. Jeff Jacobson's papers on the subject are very good too. Um, showing that you know Hubbard just plagiarized things. And what's more, he altered them. Uh, you know, He has this thing about alterisness. For something to persist... It must have a lie in it. Why right. Scientology, what's the lie in Scientology? Well, the lie is easy. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Or as Elrond Hubbard Jr. said, it works as Elrond Hubbard intends it to work, not as it claims to work. You won't be able to communicate freely with anyone on any subject after you've done grade zero. 
because you can't talk to suppressives. You can't talk about your case. You can't have verbal tech about what Scientology is. Here are all these rules right. about the communication you can't do. But you'll be able to yes. communicate freely with anyone on any subject. And that happens yes, at every I know. stage. No, totally. In fact, one of the last, con- well, the last conversation I had with my mother and my stepfather, I said, don't you believe that communication is the universal solvent? I'm sure you know that. that when in quote. doubt, communicate. Yeah. Right, exactly. Like, really, you think that uh, this is a solution? You just never it's having correct. any relationship with your daughter for the rest of y- your life? Like, anyway, yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, in, in ethical terms, that's one of the things that talking, I, I was in St. Petersburg and I was talking to a, a former Jehovah's Witness and not St. Petersburg in Russia, not in, in Florida. I realized there's, there's more than one, isn't there? Um, <laughs> yes. And, and this guy was 35 years old and he told me his parents didn't talk to him. And it somehow the resonance of that, I have four children. I don't have the right Till the day I die, I don't have the right to to not love, support, and help my children. Right. And if somebody comes along and orders me to do that, then I have no interest in them, you know, because they are a monster. Anybody that that, right. that interferes in the familial relationship between parent and child, children are going to mess with you. You know, they, they have the right to be awful to you because they're born to it. But you chose to have them. So they're your responsibility, like it or not, from then on. Completely. And the duty to love, you know, taking that away, that's, yeah, it's despicable. It's a terrible bad yeah. thing. And, th- and that's where my conclusion from my experiences is that unconditional love does not exist in Scientology. They cannot, it's, it's undermined and, um, broken that, that capacity and that responsibility from a parent standpoint, which is heartbreaking because the hurt that does is incredible. And it makes us less than human. You know, what makes us human, I believe is empathy and our ability to care for others. And when you take that away, and in Scientology, that is so, you know, the the idea that sympathy is bad. Right. You know, the idea that compassion is bad. Um, you know, a question I've, I've often asked uh, people who had kids while they were in Scientology is, you know, if your child grazed her knee, did you embrace her and say, there, there, it'll be all right? Or did you give them the silent treatment? And what the does latter, that do? the latter is my answer to that. <laughs> Having grown up in it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that is so yeah. wrong because our attachment, our security in the world, is, particularly as infants, is utterly dependent on our caregivers and the sense that they right. care, they give care, you know. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, this awful thing. So I rejected it. I, I. You know, and the first thing I rejected was the data series. I'd done the data series evaluators course, which is quite rare among um, public Scientologists. As I found, I got to the end of the course and we went to the then Guardian's office to get some evaluations for me to look at. And they they went, he can't do this course. (laughs) It's ours. It's like, well, you know, it's on the... (laughs) Oh, well. 
And so I realized that not many, many of us had done this. And I started looking at the data series value course and this sort of, it didn't make sense. This is, this is the very definition of logic, this course. This is the most, uh, the, the best training in rationality ever produced by humanity, the logic right. series and all of this. And then you look at it, you go, well, according, data According theory, to Hubbard, of course, not, not well, reality. <laughs> yeah. And his research, you know. Uh, which yes. had taken min- minutes sometimes, um, and you go to it, and it's like let, let's let's look at logic then. Data series forty eight out of sequence. The data series policy letters must not be read out of sequence. Data series forty eight. You can only read that when you've read the forty seven before it, but you don't know it exists. <laughs> it should be data series zero obviously, and it isn't. Yeah. You also got things like some 14th century psychiatrists. That was I got stuck on that with a course supervisor when I was doing it. And he was a PhD who worked for NASA. And he tried to persuade me that 14th was not, in fact, an error. I said, well, look, Hubbard probably wrote this, and it's 19th. And a 9 and a 4, when they're handwritten, look fairly similar. Somebody's typed it up wrong. I got this whole thing about faculty psychology and Thomas Aquinas and this, that, and the other. It's like, no, psychiatry is invented in the 19th century. In fact, they were called alienists at first. So it's just a mistake. (laughs) You know, it's an error. Oh, no, there can't be any errors. You know, this is the perfect Ron Hubbard. I then started looking at outpoints and going, well, importance, the importance of something. What's the importance of the different elements of Scientology? Where does it say? And when I came to write Blue Sky years later, I realized there is no simple statement. You know, there are lots of books, New Slant on Life, uh, Problems of Work, Fundamental Thought. None of them say the most important thing in Scientology is this. Well, the most important thing in Scientology is is the first factor. Before the beginning was the cause. That's that's before the beginning. So we start there. Then we go to axiom one. Life is basically a static, has no mass, no meaning, no motion, no location in space or in time, has the ability to postulate, uh, redefined by Hubbard, and to perceive. I mean, he means to wish by postulate. He doesn't mean uh, making a basic philosophic premise, which is where it comes from. But so I started, you know, when it came to it, ordering these things and going, but hang on, if this is the most rational thing in the world, why doesn't it follow the principles of the data series, the data series itself? And so from there, I just pushed it all away. And since then, I've I've looked at elements of it. Now, what I come to is that to recover from Scientology, it's necessary to understand Scientology. So Mm. the first part of that, I wrote a book. (laughs) I went, you know, piece of blue sky, Let's sell these people a piece of blue sky in the unabridged edition, for which I do actually get the proceeds, unlike the pirated first edition of Piece of Blue Sky, um, oh, which it published we'll make sure without to link my, to the right one. Yes, the, oh, wow. the one with one with the, the pretty clouds on, and the, not not the one with the big thunderstorm on. You know, that's uh, <laughs> okay. I did not but, know that. Good to know. So the, the first stage was was to say, what's the history of the subject? And why is it that the man who founded this subject was such a liar? You know, the, so these simple ideas, he was a nuclear physicist, 
No, he wasn't. He, he failed atomic and molecular physics. And he says it himself, the lecture Introduction to Dianetics, September 1950, published finally by David Miscavige. He says, I failed molecular and atomic physics. So mm. he's not a nuclear physicist. Uh, study an explorer. Oh, come on. You know, I looked into the Caribbean <laughs> motion picture expedition. And the thing that denies it is, is an article written by Hubbard himself when it was finished, where he said, we didn't do anything. We got into a fight and these people are suing me because of the mess I made. We didn't enact any pirate battles at all. And where enacting pirate battles becomes an expedition, I'm not sure. The, the Alaska right. radio experimental expedition, he spent months stranded in Ketchikan, Alaska, and we know this because he recorded radio shows while he was there. And all the pictures they show in the Run the Explorer are of Ketchikan, Alaska. <laughs> he didn't leave the harbor, you know. So <laughs> then we get the, you know, the studied with gurus in the East. And at different places, he claims to have studied with gurus in China, India, Tibet, and Mongolia. Now, I'd like to point out there aren't any gurus in Mongolia before we go any further. So, and then you find. The first time he went to India was, I think, 1954, when he landed at Calcutta Airport on his way to somewhere else. And I don't think he went there, mm. so he didn't study with many gurus there. Tibet. Oh, come on. Pull the other one. Getting into Tibet <laughs> this time. You know, I went and read all of Alexander David Neal's books. I know about this. He was never there. Um, and that leaves China. And yes, he had two short holidays in China. And I've got his diaries, handwritten diaries for both of those trips. I've also got the retype of one of them where he makes everything a little bit better, which is something he'd be working on for the rest of his life to massage data and make it sound better. So the only yes. thing in those diaries that talks about gurus or anything like is a visit to a lamasari where he says that the lamas had voices that sounded like bullfrogs. And in terms of condensing all of the wisdom of the East, well, maybe it is in there, and I'm just not understanding it. But mm, I don't somehow. Think I don't think so. so. <laughs> yeah, and so you get all wow. of this hyperbole, all of this fabulism and exaggeration. The last one, of course, well, the last two being the you know wounded war hero, and that story he started to tell in 1965. Before that, in my philosophy, you know, crippled and blinded with physical injuries, physical injuries to hip and back, not pretend injuries, but physical ones. Um, liars tend to do that. They tend to put words in so you'll believe them. And injured optic yes. nerves, he tells us. Then we go back to 1959, communication, I think it's 59, communication and isness, where he says on July the 25th, he was in Hollywood. Yeah, well, so that's like, what, 20 days before the war ended? You weren't crippled and blinded. You were in Hollywood and you beat up three petty officers. And hmm. it is true, he did get into a fight with two petty officers, not three, and was summoned yeah. as a witness to their court-martial for them having attacked him. But him slamming a beer glass in somebody's face and using his judo to throw somebody, no, absolute nonsense. So mm -hmm. then you back to 1950, November, December, and there's an interview with him in Look magazine where he has no war wounds whatsoever. He talks about having fallen down a ship's ladder and being affected by the blast of a gun light from it affecting hmm. his eyes. That's it. And ulcers and uh, pink eye, conjunctivitis. That was, those are his war wounds. So that, and then the final claim is that he developed a therapy 
through which he cured his war wounds, which he didn't in fact have. And mm-hmm. then we see the famous, you know, I think we talked about I've talked about this before, the the nineteen forty seven letter. Gentlemen, this is a request for treatment, where he's uh, it's in my little book, um, Scientology, the Cult of Greed, and there's the letter reprinted, where he's oh wow, saying you know that, that his mind is. Um, let's have a look at it. Oh, just throw my spectacles on the floor to help the process a bit. There we are. Cool. Little gold discs in front of my eyes aren't working anymore. Um, oh dear! Sorry, nineteen fifties Ron Hubbard. That was one that fell out. Um, oh, <laughs> uh, I cannot account for nor rise above long periods of moroseness and suicidal inclinations, and have newly come to realise that I must first triumph above this before I can hope to rehabilitate myself at all. Signed with the the flourish, the L. Ron Hubbard signature that we've. All oh grown. yeah. So, I cured myself. Mm, not really. January 1949, a letter that Tony Ortega uh, published. Uh, I didn't realize he didn't have it. You get used to that when you've collected hundreds of thousands of documents. Uh, and in right. 1949, he wrote to his literary agent, Forry Ackerman, uh, from Savannah, Georgia, where he was staying with uh, Major Burks, his guru at the time, and said he'd worked out a technique whereby you could <laughs> women and they'd know nothing about it. That's the oh. first mention of Dianetics. Oh, my gosh. He also says he's going to make a huge amount of money from it. He doesn't say anything about helping anyone. So that's the first wow. part to, of, of getting out of this, to understand that this man was a pathological liar. He wrote right. pop fiction, and he then extended that. But the next part... And the part that is vital, I mean, people have often come to me and I know Ben Corridan, when, when he left, was taking his e-meter to go and help people, you know, recover from Scientology. It's like, Ben, no, <laughs> that's really not. We, and people come to me and say, oh, but it'll take thousands of hours of auditing to undo this. And you go, no, it takes about 10 minutes. What you have to understand is just find something he said that's not true and realize what that means. So mm-hmm. um, I talked with Aaron somewhere over a year ago, and I pointed out to him that um, what Hubbard says is if you increase any of the three corners of the affinity reality communication triangle, the others will increase too. So it's mm-hmm. a piece of mathematics. It's a piece of geometry. So if you increase communication with somebody, you'll increase their affinity for you. But Hubbard also mm-hmm. said, Bullets, too, are communication. So what he's saying is if I shoot somebody, they'll like me more. <laughs> right? If I yell at, yell at somebody, they'll like me more. And you go, but right. this is a foundation of Scientology. And if that's not true, yeah. and it isn't, then what we've got is pseudoscience, which, curiously enough, is what the word Scientology means when it was first mm-hmm. used in 1910 by a man called Alan Upwood, he said, there is science and there is Scientology. And he was so right. Um, that hmm. In Scientology, what we have is not a, a nuclear physicist who studied with gurus in the East, bringing together all of the mysteries of the East. I mean, as somebody who'd studied Buddhist and Taoist teaching, 
I didn't find anything. You know, he, he, in Phoenix lectures, he makes some comment, but he evidently doesn't have the vaguest idea what Buddhism and Taoism are. And his access to Taoism right. is Alistair Crowley's translation, which is dreadful, of the Tao Te Ching. Um, mine's much better, much better than Alistair Crowley. <laughs> um, so you come to this point of, so when I first talked with, with my friend Carmen, who had grown up in Scientology and had a horrific experience of it. Um, and she was then, I think, 37 years old. And in our first conversation on Skype or Google Hangups or whatever it was, she, she said to me, is it true that reality is an agreement? And I was sort of, oh my. Yes, if you're the hypnotist, reality is an agreement. But otherwise, Oh no. my gosh. It's the world's out wow. there, whether whether you want it to be, whether you close your eyes, whatever you do, it's out there and it's constant and continuous. It doesn't matter if you right. stop believing in it, it'll still be there. As Immanuel Kant, I'm told, said, and I've never read Kant because it's way beyond my pay grade, um, but I'm told that he said we have the world in which we live and we have the world that we inhabit, which is in our own heads. Um Hmm. So we live in the our interpretation of the world, how it makes us feel and what we believe about it, um, our own universe, Hubbard would say, though that is in fact a misdefinition of universe, which is a whole system of created things. Um, you don't have your yes. own universe, you have your own head, your own thoughts, and your own ideas. But nonetheless, off she went and a week later she came back and she was jubilant. She said, She'd used scented laundry conditioner. Now, <laughs> wow! This is the whole Huge of my method. Step forward. Yeah, we hadn't <laughs> talked about the Steorg hygiene hat or Hubbard's phobia of scents, which was shared by Rajneesh, curiously enough. So it might be a particular element of narcissism that that they they you know overemphasize smell. But hmm. she she basically said, you know, I have never in my life used a perfume. Because I was taught yep. that it's the psychiatrist controlling the world through scent, which is a wonderful idea. Yes. Um, and that is the process. It's that simple. If you can get hold of something and go, he was wrong about this, then you can keep yep. thinking and go, well, he was wrong about that. He was wrong about that. And the enchantment fades. The belief fades. You realize in the end, it's just hokum. Scientology has no substance. It, it achieves none of the things it claims. There are no clears. People who don't yeah. catch colds, people who have you know, the proper emotional reaction to everything, people who are not distressed by anything in the world anymore. No. Uh, the, the reality is, and I have heard somebody, and I won't name him, in the counter-cult world say that you're only cured when you can laugh at the experience, which is pretty much what Hubbard was saying. Hmm. You've come up tone. No. If you think about those of your comrades that fell beside you, you should always feel sad when you think about it. For sure. You know, it, you know if you are human, if you are decent, the, the thing is that the, that response can become less, that, that one can get to yeah. a point where one is not overwhelmed with grief and one can say, well, you know, yeah. these things happen. So, yeah. Interesting. And, and so my comment on that, by the way, I, I completely agree the the struggle that i had 
in it when I was in is that I felt handcuffed by my family being in. So I wouldn't even allow myself to do that those steps that mm. you're talking about because mm. of the consequences I knew it would have. Yes. And there's also the, there's also the the thought which is completely and absolutely wrong that there are operating thetans in Scientology who can read your mind. Mm -hmm. And that's that's a weird thing. I I remember, you know, when I first encountered that when I got involved, it makes you feel kind of squirmy that you might think something mm -hmm. awful that this person's going to to read. And I, I right. did I tell tell a story last last time we spoke about Stephanie Ryburn who ran the Birmingham mission, and she always treated me. It seemed to me with disdain. And no. um, I, I thought it was because I had long hair. I thought you know. It, I was a hippie or something, but she never smiled. She never called me by name. And seven years on, we're both doing OT5 in the waiting room there. And she came out beaming and she said, John, she used my name, you know, it's like, and um, isn't it great that Ron's come up with something that handles the mess that OT3 makes. <laughs> kind of, she was a class eight auditor <laughs> trained by Hubbard. She'd done OT3, uh, you know, and she's saying her life for 15 years thereafter had been a chaos because of that. And now she was looking for something to repair the, the danger of that. But So you have that other thought, which is if you dare to have these thoughts, somebody might read your mind. <laughs> and. Yes. They won't. Yeah. They or won't. even the belief that the <clears throat> yes, or the belief that the 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 e meter that the whatever their device will uncover it. Mm. And and you know, I mean, which it is it's a ridiculous nonsense. It, it it is such a pathetically bad piece of equipment. I'm sure so, sure Mark knows about this yeah. and understands it better than I do. But um, I had a friend, Barry Pemberthy who he and his friend, um, they mended the e-meters at St. Hill for years. And they were going, why, mm -hmm. why are we using these awful cheap components? And he was very mm -hmm. upset that they were using germanium transistors, which didn't mean very much to me, but apparently they really are crud. Mm -hmm. And so they went, what would happen if we built a meter using the best components? So they did. And um, they were so pleased with themselves, they set up uh, chart recorders with pens on a Mark V e-meter as it was then, and their ability meter as it came to be known. And they went to the pub to celebrate. And when they got back, mm. there were twice as many reads on the Mark V. So they went, oh, we've got it wrong. What have we done? So they didn't go down the pub next time. And they found that half of the reads on the e-meter were being generated from the inside. So Wow. The most famous thing Holy about that is, is the rock slam that, that Hubbard yes. can find a huge amount of the, the crew at um, Clearwater, the flag land base, to the rehabilitation project force because they were list one rock slammers. They'd had a rock slam. And the rock slam, I mean, I saw it, so you perhaps did as well. I saw it often enough. Mm -hmm. It didn't have to have the cans plugged in. An e-meter could rock slam without having any input. I saw that several times. Yes. And they introduced silver ceiling somewhere around 81 so that you could pay 
to have the meter, the defect in the meter repaired. The meter was that it had silver, a carbon silver, pollution. silver starting, silver, the silver, silver starting. Yeah. <clears throat> oh, yes, yes, yes. Your, yes. your no, e-meter, I, would... and they also, yeah, and they added the step of if a rock slam starts, which is obviously the erratic just loose cannon needle bouncing all over the place that you do a test and you unplug and you do this and you do that. And most times it was a mechanical flaw. What? It's a very, spe- it's very, spe- very specific flaw that, that you have a carbon potentiometer, which is pretty much a, like a dimmer switch for lights. That's the tone arm on a meter. And mm-hmm. every time you move it, it's giving off little bits of, of carbon and they're getting into mm-hmm. the, the circuitry and causing rock slams. So, I mean, th- to add to that story, when I interviewed Otto Rose, who was the only person to do OT8 under Hubbard's direction, one of only five people to be trained to the level of class 12, the highest level by Hubbard, he, when Hubbard got ill, you know, every winter Hubbard would get bronchitis because if you smoke 100 cigarettes a day you get bronchitis what am i saying right. if you deal with with the problems <laughs> of the world and all the suppressives you get bronchitis and so you know the clearing course came out of a bronchial attack ot3 came out of a bronchial attack he was trying to cure himself david mayo of course later on got to develop new aerodynetics for operating thetans because hubbard was yet again a potential trouble source no no sorry was ill it, 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 with him it wouldn't be that because he was a superior godlike being i'm being a little right. sarcastic here i think um, <laughs> of course so as otto, you should be <laughs> yeah exactly otto otto comes to this and hubbard's ill and otto said he went through every scrap of paper things written on envelopes everything that could be considered a part of hubbard's auditing folder and at the end of it he said ron you said that rock slams which used to indicate the presence of the rock, the thing that was causing you to have a case at all, which that's an idea that disappeared in the early 60s. The rock slam shifted over to indicate you had evil purposes. And Otto pointed out to Ron Hubbard that he'd found 200 rock slams in his folders. 200. And the next thing he knew... In Hubbard's folders. In Hubbard's folders. The next thing he knew, standing on the dock with his passport... (laughs) <laughs> and that was the end of his which, association with Ron Hubbard. Yeah, which, by the way, now David Miscavige does the exact same thing. Anyone who says that he is a suppressive person or that he's the reason they're failing or he's the reason they're sick, they're out, they're gone. Quite right, too. You, you know, the, the thought that David Miscavige is anything but the most benevolent human being who ever lived is, is just such a foreign thought to us all, those of us who know and yeah. love him. Yeah, it. it. <laughs> I love your sarcasm. the 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 craziest part was, um, I'm sure you remember the um, Anderson Cooper show, A History of Violence, mm. um, the series that he did, uh, which in in which many past executives who had witnessed David Miscavige physically abuse staff. Mm. Um, <clears throat> in for that show, there were affidavits provided from current members of the sea organization and they're like the tone of them was oh i saw him rescue a baby bird a helpless baby bird and you're just like oh come on enough with the lies seriously stop it yeah i mean the the first time i ever saw or heard of david miscavige was in um 
I think it's called The Sea Org Moves In, and it was an account of the San Francisco Mission Holders Conference in October 1982. And there's a picture of Miscavige. This was published throughout Scientology around the time that David Mayo was declared, you know, in, in that, that period. And there is Miscavige holding somebody, you know, forcibly and threatening them. So he's right there. And years later, mm -hmm. decades later, I had an email from a guy who said, um, I'm the man in the photo. <laughs> oh, my gosh. He grabbed tie and slammed me against a filing cabinet. So the, the first time we find out about Miscavige, he is committing an act of violence. And he says that we are going to be tough and ruthless. Those are the words in the thing. And that was what I, that was very important to me when I read that, it was in 1983, the year I left, and kind of went, yeah, tough, got to do that. Ruthless, never. As soon yep. as you do that, you've, you've lost everything. Right. Um, and away it went. So, yeah, that, so, yeah the, the thing is to, to be able to recognize Scientology thinking in yourself. When I, I came to, to know the wonderful Cyril Vosper, the man who wrote The Mind Benders, about his experiences with Ron Hubbard and Scientology over a 14-year period. He told me, and he'd been out for 14 years by this time when I met him, hmm. he told me that he still would be crossing the road and wondering if he'd committed an overt. <laughs> so that's the other part of it, to look at language and say that this is propaganda by redefinition of words, if we use our Ron Hubbard's explanation of why you have to change the meanings of words. Nobody, right. even Shakespeare, didn't create as many neologisms as Ron Hubbard. Two 600-page dictionaries, the tech dictionary and right. modern management technology defined. And lots of contradictions and conflicts. This is not a precision language. It's a very ugly language. There's nothing poetic about Hubbard's language. But he's trying to make it sound sciency. You know, he's trying to... Right. Pull, pull one over and, and kind of get you to believe that, that there's something scientific here. You know, when lambda interacts with theta or theta and, and, and all of this stuff. Right. To, to look at language and pull the language out. If you find yourself using a Scientology term, I mean, I, mean, I was lucky because I lived in the uh, WOG, to use Hubbard's term, the wog world. That's a very abusive term in the UK, by the way. It's like the N-word. Right. And, yeah, and which I I know I've that's been brought to my attention multiple times. And I yeah. I'm it's just shocking to know that's a word I grew up with as a child. Yeah. And it was a different kind of, oh, we're better than everybody else. We're better than the outside than a, a re regular person on the street. But the thought of finding out it's a racial slur was shocking yeah. to me. Yeah, you, you are untermensch, the rest of you, and we are ubermensch. We are the elect. Mm -hmm. We are superior to you, this ridiculous idea. Right. But because I lived in that world, I was never a staff member, I had to talk English. So I always mm -hmm. had and, – and now that I see former members, you know, I, there was an interview with um, somebody who'd left, and, and she said that she didn't feel any blame, shame, or regret. And, of course – <laughs> to somebody who's not been indoctrinated in Scientology, you wouldn't notice this. But No, you wouldn't catch that as a phrase. Yeah. Yeah. And the language we use is most of how we actually think. 
that our, our thinking, there is non-linguistic thinking, but most of how we think is caught in language and we start believing the things we're saying to be true. So yeah. um, history of science has many examples. Phlogiston is the one that's usually brought up, the idea that when you burn something, it weighs less than it did before you burned it. So it's given off phlogiston, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, the idea of the ether, that, that uh, the luminiferous ether, that, that the universe was packed with this stuff and the planets are all held in it, which had come on from the crystal spheres. And then Einstein comes along and um, shows why you don't need the ether. But mm-hmm. that people will, even so even in the scientific community, people will believe things which are in fact only words. Phlogiston turned out to be oxygen, uh, among mm-hmm. other things that are lost when something burns. And we got Lavoisier yeah. and all of that good stuff. Um, I would say that if one's interpretation of the world is in Scientologies, then it's a good idea to find a normal word. And that process is also part of recovery. So I I guess what I'm saying is you don't need somebody to sit down with you and audit you for a thousand hours. You just need to start two processes going. One, questioning the veracity of what Hubbard said, whether it's about himself or, you know, how we should live in the world. And two, looking at language. That can be accelerated a bit. I advocate, I've advocated this many times. I don't think anybody's followed up on it, but I will tell this story again. Back in, I think it was 93, <laughs> in the old days, you know, in the last century, I collected together <laughs> 11 ex-Scientologists and sat with them in my living room to try something out. And the idea was this. Between us, we had more than 200 years of experience of Scientology. So that's quite a lot. Mm-hmm. So I said, look, what I'm going to do is I'm going to yeah. put forward a Scientology principle. I'm going to go from my left. I'm not going to be the first person to speak because that's quite important because I know far too much about this and people will just start looking at me to give them answers. And that really isn't what's meant to be happening. I'll go from the first to my left and tell me a time you've applied this idea. And then we'll go around and everybody will add to it. And then we'll come back to me and I'll put my experience in and then we'll talk about it. So I started with the eight dynamics the urges towards survival, you know, the first dynamic self, the second, the family sex, the third groups, the fourth mankind, and on up to God, who has the the position at eight, or infinity, according yes. to Hubbard. One right. Or the other. I don't think they're the same thing. But um, So I said, you know, the, so the first person said, oh, I've never used it. The second person said, never used it. Third, fourth, fifth. It came all the way back round to me. Two hundred years experience in Scientology. Not one person in that room had ever tried to apply the eight dynamics to solve a problem. You know, every dynamic gets a vote. I then deconstructed it and said, "So what you're being told is that if it's good for you, it's good for the misses. It's good for the cricket club. It's good for your pet rock, and the spirits around are happy with it. That's five votes. We don't care what God thinks." <laughs> oh my gosh. Believing Good point. God, those those are the seven <laughs> votes who are irrelevant. And why do I get a vote and the by now nearly eight billion people only get one vote? There's something right. disproportionate here. There's something psychopathic here, in fact. I'm as important as all yeah. of mankind. I'm as important as God. This is the kind of thing Ron Hubbard thought. This is not a safe way of thinking about things. So I realized that me being in the room probably interfered with the process because I've spent too much time thinking about it. But I do advocate yeah. that if people you could get together online, 
in a Zoom chat or something and have a small group of people, excluding anybody who's hostile, negative and angry, I'm afraid, mm-hmm. have a small group of people and take a passage from Fundamentals of Thought or, or one of the axioms, you know, try and work out if you can why space is a viewpoint of dimension. You know, I had two hours sitting with a convinced Scientologist who, when I said, you know, this is tautological nonsense, she said, no, I'll explain it to you. And two hours later, she said, it's tautological nonsense. Space is a viewpoint <laughs> of dimension. It's like, you know, words are a wordiness of wordfulness. You know, it's like, yeah, what did you tell me? Liberate yourself from the ideas, from the beliefs, from the concepts, because it is the beliefs are, if you like, the software that's driving our behavior and our activity. If we think it is good, for example, yeah. to give somebody a contact assist, then that's what we'll do. Ask for evidence right. instead. Say, you know. Yeah, and you're right. The language does. Yeah, and you're absolutely right. The language does reinforce the belief system. And so for me, like when when I escaped, we ended up in the middle of nowhere, relatively speaking, from a Scientology perspective in Kansas City, Missouri. And That's so the middle we of just nowhere from uh, anybody's perspective, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's all relative. It's seen significant growth of late. Depends where the rest of nowhere that, is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But my point being that so, you know, three days out, I I was working as a waitress in a pizza restaurant and d- had to forcefully shut off all language, Um, you know, but that was an interesting process in in and of itself because I found that I couldn't always tell what was Scientological language and what wasn't because I was born into it. Yeah. And and that extends to belief that that in, in talking with people who've had the great misfortune to be born into Scientology, when they leave, those of us who were tricked and conned into Scientology, nobody chooses to join Scientology. That's just a silly idea. If, if you were told, yeah, you can work 90 hours a week and not have any children and yeah, somebody will shout at you every day, you're not going to join, basically. Right. So you have to be lied to to start it. But however we got into it, I could revert back. In fact, I never actually abandoned my my Buddhist beliefs, they were consistent, or, or indeed my Taoist beliefs, throughout Scientology. Because to me, the idea that Scientology was a religion was a laughable idea, you know. And yeah. I didn't think religion was a very good thing, so I didn't want to be part of religion. But my beliefs, um, and technically um, Taoism and Buddhism are not religions because they have no object of worship. And by definition, a religion must have an object of worship. Uh, so you could say the Buddha is and the Bodhisattvas are worshipped. You could say that Lao Tzu and Jiang Tzu are worshipped. They shouldn't be, though, because the teachings actually say they shouldn't be. Oh, so do the teachings hmm. of Scientology. We shouldn't worship Ron Hubbard, but people right. do. And his stat, I'm told, was uh, at events, how many minutes are spent clapping the picture of Ron? That, that for him was a mm-hmm. very important statistic. He wanted to know how much adulation, um, the part of admiration is is the best and you should never desire to be liked or, or admired. You know, there are a lot of contradictions in this. <laughs> right. Yes, endless, endless contradictions. In fact, mm-hmm. once you open that door, you're going to be uh, wading through a lot. 
which yeah. it should so, be opened as you as as we're talking about if if you leave and and you've you know went from a christian background and into this then you can head back there and and then think about what you want to believe which is a very important step in this whole process going you know what do i want to believe and what's the truth because separating that out and going well i want to believe that there's this heroic warrior king who has given us this philosophy which will save all of humanity which by the way hubbard mm -hmm. wrote in a story called the end is not yet a year before hmm. starting dianetics where he said there's a nuclear physicist who develops a philosophy that prevents world war three you know so he then started trying to get himself into his own childish script as ever but if you leave and it's all it's what you've grown with it it's how you've thought it's how you've looked at the world. Overcoming that's going to be a lot more difficult, but yeah. also potentially more rewarding. You know, that, that when you read the Tao Te Ching, say, or, or Zhang Su, um, or little bits of Buddhist scripture, or I don't know, um, Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell's a great thing to read because he, he was brilliant and he, he enjoyed life and um, he wrote, wrote a book about happiness, which is great good fun. Um, mm -hmm. So you, it's finding the right things to engage with and say, you know, Darren Brown's book, Happy, is, is a really good book for somebody who's been involved with Scientology because you've got a guy who's mm. saying you don't actually have to believe anything, but you can yep. be happy. You know, you can be an atheist and be happy. You can believe in God and be happy. It, it's that Here are some ways of approaching this and you do it you know, for me it was a very deliberate process leaving scientology because i felt great i felt so good that i didn't have to mm -hmm. think in these blinkered ways anymore i didn't have to be thinking about the ideal scene or you know these <laughs> nonsensical concepts i could just decide what i wanted to think about and right so the first year i was really quite you know, it was it was very good, even though I was dealing with a lot of very troubled people and being harassed every day. It's the liberation right. of it was, and then being able to go, I'll read these books, and you know, by their hundreds as the years go by, realizing that the world is so much more than Elron Hubbard would give us access to. You know, that, right. that there is so much beauty and wonder in the natural world, in other people and in our relationship with them, and in creativity, in the arts, that that we are yeah. part of this, you know, there's the whole universe out there. And there's this one planet right. that we know of with this one species that we can be sure has developed language and perception and communal memory so that we can keep adding to our knowledge and keep going further. Um, right. For, for me, it's it's been a very positive experience, um, but I, I have tremendous sympathy for anybody who has to, as you do, to struggle up and find out what to believe. And as I say, hopefully yeah. it becomes an exciting and positive thing, as long as you don't read the wrong. Yes. <laughs> don't start reading, you know, Rajneesh instead, you know, something like that. <laughs> okay, yes, no, absolutely, for sure. <laughs> the other thing. That, well, that, I would love. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I just quickly wanted to say the other thing that you brought up was was how do you you if if you if you have a, a loved one in Scientology, how do you approach that? 
And yes, it, it's and, very... and as I said to you, this is this is the question that Mark and I, I think, have been asked the most in the last 19 years. How do I, you know, um, how first of all, where is my loved one? And second of all, how do I approach this? Because um, as you and I both know, if you say, hey, you're in a cult, you need to get out. You end up a Scientologist will shut down and shut you out, and there's no there's no path forward there. So I was very curious to get your thoughts on this. I had a, an actual situation. I, I did a few interventions with you know very committed Scientologists back in the early nineties, and in the end, I decided that the harassment that I got from that it was just too much to deal with. You know, being followed by seven carloads of Scientologists and. Um, all you know, being yelled at and and all of this stuff. It was just, it was just silly to to help one person leave because there were so many people who were leaving naturally, and they I could help mm -hmm. them. I couldn't charge them money, which felt wrong, you know. Um, so I had to borrow money so I could do it, which was a bit bit silly, really. But nonetheless, I could help them rather than the intervention scene where, um, you know, it, it's so intense. It, it, it's yes. It's, it's such a process. I'm in, I'm happy I did it. I learned a great deal from doing it. But anyway, this one case, and what had happened was I got a phone call saying um, that this young man was returning from the United States, where he had signed a billion-year contract. Now he was meant to go up to Oxford University, and he decided and. Remarkable young man. I really admire him for the, for the way he approached this. He, he'd he gone to Oregon, had a Dianetics session. It had got rid of all of his problems in life. And now he'd signed a sea organization contract for a billion years. But he felt ethically compelled to actually explain this in person to his parents rather than hmm. just, I'm gone. And he knew yeah. that they'd be a bit disappointed that he wasn't going to Oxford because <laughs> it's quite difficult getting in there. <laughs> And he'd been involved for nine days. That was the whole involvement. And the parents rang me up wow. and said, look, I said, I, you know, I need three months to prepare before seeing somebody. I need to know so much about what's happened to be effective. And they said, not going to have that chance. He's going to fly back. So I walked into the room and he came in and his dad looked at him and said, you look so brainwashed when you got off the plane. And that was the next <laughs> two hours of my day, you know, trying to get this poor lad to, so what you say is so true. If you tell anybody you're an idiot involved in a load of stupid nonsense, it's probably not going to make them feel better. Uh, right. So brainwashing cults, showing them the newspaper clippings, telling them to read my book, none of this is going to work. What does work is having the best possible relationship you can with that person. And that usually yeah. means not talking about Scientology at all. If they want to talk about Scientology, it means not criticizing them and encouraging them to say as much as possible. What benefits yes. have you received? What what did you what was your expectation when you first met it? What what help did you think it would give you? How many people have you seen who've achieved? these benefits? What are the promised benefits? Get them to talk about the benefits and do not in any way criticize them or try to make them think rationally. Just get them to mm -hmm. talk about it. Because what I find is that 
when you talk about it, as with anything, you start realizing what the gaps are in your information. You start realizing, well, actually, I haven't seen anybody produce any OT phenomena. Very important, no leading questions. No, you know, if they want to talk about it, let them talk about it. But otherwise, as Steve Hassan and others have wisely said for many years, remind them of the time before. Show them pictures. Talk about the the good things, the happy things. I I have a slightly different take. You know, Steve in Combating Cult Mind Control, which everybody should read. It's a brilliant book. But he talks about an authentic self and a cult self. I don't Mm -hmm. see it that way. Um, I think that all of us are a combination of of many identities, many behaviors that are responsive. So the mood I'm in, and I I talk about this at some length in Opening Our Minds, the mood I'm in is, is, let's say, the Y axis, and who I'm talking to is the X axis. So if I'm hmm. talking to my my cat Lucy, who you met the last time, um, mm-hmm. if I'm talking to Lucy, then I will talk to her in a particular way, you know, which is different from the way I'd talk to somebody who was my boss, or somebody who was my employee, yep. or somebody who was my sibling, somebody who was my child. That is one aspect of identity. So I don't believe there are all these thousands of little beings or anything like that i believe we occupy a certain identity at a certain time then there's a mood i'm in if if i'm annoyed if i'm cheerful you know if i'm fearful whatever those two things will determine where how i behave what -hmm. happens in scientology is there's an expectation of mood you're supposed to be enthusiastic right and (laughs) Really, I'm so enthusiastic about getting two hours sleep every night. You know, it's unbelievable. And I'm supposed to regard Hubbard as a an all knowing parent to whose you know attitudes and ideas you know I I submit my fellows Mm -hmm. as siblings. Some of them older siblings because they're further up the bridge than I am. Some of them junior siblings, but they're my siblings. And the doctrine of the cult, and I owe this point to Yuval Lahore, the brilliant Yuval Lahore, the doctrine of the cult is the baby. Do not criticize the baby. If you want Mm. to talk to somebody who's involved in Scientology, don't say, that's an ugly baby you've got there, because Mm -hmm. you will get the automatic response that, of course, any decent parent gives. My baby does not look like Winston Churchill. How dare you say that? So (laughs) you treat the person as, as... as your friend, as your, you know, as somebody you really want to communicate with, and you encourage them to do all the talking. You know, you get them to externalize what they believe, and they will start. And when they go, oh, but that doesn't make sense, you just leave them. Don't say anything. Don't acknowledge yeah. it. Don't, because this is as delicate as as the ugly baby. So, you know. Be kind and don't give them any money. Right. (laughs) Anything you want to give to them should be something that they can't sell that that will help them. And no, and I have seen this. I I worked with a family where this this man had been involved for 20 years and he got to the point where he hadn't spoken to his parents um, and all but one of his siblings, and he had quite a lot of siblings, none of his other siblings in seven years. 
And Ugh. what you want is, you know, this is the point where communication is more communication, not less. Be supportive, be encouraging, and understand that if you hold on there, there are so many people who got stuck in the Sea Org and have nowhere to go because right. they've antagonized or been antagonized by everybody else they knew. Stay in touch with them, even if it's just sending a postcard once a month or, you know, a an, an email picture of a flower or something. I've been criticized for, for appending flowers to my emails. Andy Nolch in Australia. Like, I, I, I like your flowers. <laughs> yeah, well, I like flowers too, but he, he seemed to think there was something very suspicious about somebody that appends. And I do take the photographs too. They're not things I, I steal from anywhere. So, but and yeah. I find them beautiful. And it's not, I, I really, with Andy Nolch, wasn't expressing a desire to have with him, which I think is, is oh how, my he gosh. how he interprets flowers. Oh my gosh. You know, don't send wow. him a birthday card, whatever you do. So, yeah. I wouldn't read something like that into a picture of a flower. No, it, 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 uh, but Andy Nolch is, is a special case, all in all. Um, <laughs> I, I, I had great fun. I, I did three. He interviewed me three times. And he started out by saying that he'd left Scientology because he'd been looking at my work. But then we start the first interview and he's saying, I'm a half Scientologist. And it's like, oh, no, where are we going? And I was really busy, so I hadn't checked him out. I didn't realize that he's this really contentious figure. Um, yeah. The space cowboy or whatever, who is. And so then he, after we'd done this, he he did this video attacking me, which I, I welcome, you know, bring it on. And um, my son Sam and I deconstructed this line by line. It's my one of my favorite videos on my channel because it's going to the conspiracy theory and so he said at one point, you know, John wants strong evidence. He should be willing, like me, to take weak evidence. I'm like, because, <laughs> you know, there's, uh, he knows that global warming is not happening because he's been down to the beach in Melbourne and the water level never changes. And you're going, hmm. you don't have tides in Melbourne? That's weird. So it, it was fun, but yes. he's recently written to me and, and said that the CIA are monitoring my email. So I'm a little bit worried about that, I must say. They, um, okay, they well, stop, best of luck with that, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy stuff. But <laughs> oh, yes, my goodness. Be in relationship. Be a good person. Um, think about communicating and communicate the good stuff. You know, wasn't it great yeah. when we went to Skegness? It wasn't actually thinking about it. Well, wasn't this experience that we shared great? And send photographs in those emails of yes. happy days, you know. And when the day comes yeah. and if, where they go, and, yeah. go ahead. No, I was just going to say I've I've given that advice many times too. That if if you can get a, a member of the C organization to come visit you, then invest the time in creating amazing memories because those mm. will plant seeds that words will not words will be ineffective, but memories of really amazing times spent mm. outside of that environment has great value. And get them to talk about what they love. Um, you know, my way in, in in talking with with fanatical members, the, the, I started out, Steve Hassan shared with me the inventory he used. This was back in 1991. And I adapted it over the, the 
four or five years that I did this. And I came to this position where actually all I needed to know about somebody was what was their favorite music, what was their favorite movie, and what was their favorite book if they read books. And knowing that about somebody gave me references. And getting the person to think about, you know, as long as it's not death metal, obviously, getting the person to think <laughs> about the music they love, the cinema that's meaningful, them, and getting them to talk about it, talking about you know their favorite food. As you say, it's giving them good memories, but it's also pulling up their good memories. And yeah, so that, so that they'll feel comfortable with you. The, the other part of that is be thoroughly genuine. You know, if it comes to it and, and you have to say something, say, I don't really understand Scientology. Explain it to me. Mm -hmm. You know, I, and it's certainly a bad idea to go and read Hubbard books and start saying, well, he says this here and <laughs> or point out right. that John Atak <laughs> said this. You know, that's not going to work. <laughs> no. <laughs> or that you've been watching, you know, Scientology in the Aftermath on Netflix mm, or yeah. listening to this podcast or that podcast or yeah, Barefaced or... Messiah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, interesting. Well, thank you very much for, for covering that. And, mm. and as always, just fascinating to hear your perspective and, okay. and, um, and learn more about the incredible work you've done because there's a lot more of that that's needed for sure. And it's, it's a challenging task. <laughs> Isn't it? And and I think it's I mean I what I saw as the years went by was was that Scientology is a kind of microcosm of just about everything that's wrong in the world. But the lack of care for other human beings, the lack of empathy, compassion for other human beings, this you know statistical management, which is actually the Taylor management system from about just before the First World War that Hubbard hijacked. It's, it's not an original thought. And it's long been shown yeah. that if, if you try and manage people by statistics rather than by creating a, a, a community, that, that your business will fail. <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't right. work. But when Jesse Prince was at Toronto and was saying in 2015, and he, he was saying that... Um, St. Hill at that the time that the independents were rising up 83, 84, had 180 staff and seven people in the East Grinstead scene uh, who were independents were had more auditing hours and more training completions than the whole of St. Hill. And this was such hmm. a thought that you've created this monstrous machine, which is largely people spying on other people. So flag reps, Elrond Hubbard right. communicators, the OSA, they're all making sure that the money is all going into David Miscavige's bank account, which is the well, right. it's the governing governing policy of Scientology, isn't it? As Elrond Hubbard said, make money, make more money, make others produce so as to make even more money. I didn't read that until after I'd left and went, that's the most important policy in Scientology, make <laughs> money. Oh, no. Right. So, yeah. Good fun. Isn't that Thank the truth? you. Yeah. Yes, no, absolutely. Always fascinating. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I hope we will be able to regularly touch bases because like I said, I, I learn new things every day and your perspective is is very enlightening. Well, thank you. That's most kind. And and yeah, I'm absolutely delighted to be doing this. And um we will post it on our site. And if if you want me to see comments, 
post them on my site. Um, and I will try Perfect. and get to them. I don't always, but, um, and, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, these are important things that, and they spread into the yeah. world. It, people who have learned this, people who have lived this, people who have been able to integrate this, we have a tremendous gift that we can give because we live in an authoritarian world where techniques similar to Scientology are being used by politicians, by public relations people, by advertisers, by all sorts of people. And by having had the experience and overcome the experience, we can really help people uh, and we should be doing rather than all of this sitting about insulting one another and, you know, which is just childishly tedious, frankly, you know, that we should use yeah. the skills we have to, to help the world rather than to screw yes. up other people, whoever they are. Yes, definitely. Do the work one day at a time. That's awesome. It. Well, thank you, John. Until next time, I appreciate you greatly and take good thank care. You. Likewise. you too. Thanks a lot, Claire. Thank you. Thanks for watching. If you'd like to help support the channel, feel free to check out the merch store link in the description. We have Hail Xenu, Xenu is my homeboy, and BFG branded mouse pads, shirts, mugs, all sorts of other stuff in there that helps us to bring you new content on a regular basis. You can also pick up a copy of my book, Blown for Good, Behind the Iron Curtain of Scientology, in hardback, Kindle, and Audible versions as well. There's also a link to our podcast, and you can get that on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you'd like to watch another video, you can click on this link right here, or you can click on this one here, or you can click on the subscribe button right here. Thanks a lot. Until next time.